listening to the Strategies at Work podcast, May 2012. Today's episode is titled, The Purpose of Business. What is the purpose of business? Many would respond that the purpose of business is to make money. While profit is one of the results of business, is it really the purpose of business? Or consider the possibility that the purpose of business is to promote social good. For example, there is much fanfare around the charitable fundraising prowess of the PGA Tour in America. Other companies are lauded for reducing their carbon footprint or energy conservation or supporting social causes. Depending on your worldview, you may or may not view these initiatives as socially good. Other than money and the social good, is there a more profound purpose of business? The purpose of business is to provide a venue for man to obey the creation mandate and therefore administer God's rule in the universe. Decisions made based primarily on money or social good will prove to be unwise. The only wise way to conduct business is to align with the will and ways of God. Projecting the rule and reign of God is the number one objective of business. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Ruling in God's Creation, a Case Study. Well, again, I want to welcome you to the Executive Forum. And most of you have probably been here before. You know that what we try to do with the Executive Forum is tell you stories that have largely been lost. Stories of great men and women who in many ways, just like you, were committed to living according to their convictions and what they did to accomplish the results they got. And we've, we've told you stories of people like J.C. Penney, uh, Thomas Watson, IBM fame, um, founder of Service Master, Marion Wade, many people like that, that that you've known of in the past and you've respected. And we shared with you the biblical heritage that was really at the source, the foundation of those great stories. Well, today we want to tell you another another incredible story. And this may be one of the best ever. And it's a story that um, I found um, most of the material written by a man in 1907, uh, in a book that um, uh, was very hard to find, first of all, it's out of print, so you, I fa- had to find a PDF copy, which I finally did get. And as I read the book, what I discovered was the man probably was an atheist. And so what he was recording was data. He didn't really know how to interpret the data. And so what I'm trying to do is take the data and put a biblical perspective on it. So that's the challenge. In fact, that's generally the challenge. When I told the, the Mayo Clinic story, that was exactly what I ran into there. Nobody had told that story from a biblical perspective. So we'll try to give you now the story today as best I can from a biblical perspective. So let's go back in time. It's the uh, latter part of the 1820s. The United States is, uh, at that time, was not prospering, as we would consider material prosperity. Food was in short supply. Uh, there was a lot of disease and sickness. There was a lot of difficulty in the country, a lot of turmoil. And during this time, there were farmers that were trying very hard to f- come up with ways to make the production of food more efficient. Because basically, you live hand to mouth. You raised your food, and you ate your food. You raised your food, you ate your food. So there was really no extra time to do anything else other than just, just take care of your, your daily needs for food. So during this time, there was a man named Robert, and Robert worked hard at his farm, and he decided he had to come up with a machine to make, make harvesting easier. Harvesting grain is very challenging. It's very dirty, it's hot, it has to be done quickly because grain comes to, it comes to fruit very quickly, and so when, it, when it's ready to harvest, you've got to get after it. You can't just wait on it. 
So he, he worked for about 15 years trying to come up with a machine to harvest, automatically harvest this grain. And he had no success at it. Finally, he gave up. His young son, who at the time he gave up was probably close to 20, at the time he, Robert had started his work, the young son was about five. So the son spent a good part of his growing up time watching his father struggle trying to make this machine work. But when his father gave up, his son went to his father and said, uh, Dad, do you mind if I keep working on this machine? Robert was frustrated. He said, fine, you can go ahead and do it. And best I can tell from the historical record, Robert even gave his son a servant, which I know in our day and time, we, that doesn't, isn't an acceptable practice. But back then, that was. Living in Virginia in the 1820s, they did have slavery. And by the way, the people here were very godly people, mostly Presbyterians. They just had the conviction that slavery was acceptable. <clears throat> and so with this servant, uh, Mac, the son, began to work on the father's invention. He took what the father had done and trying to figure out how to solve the problems that the father couldn't solve. It didn't take long before Mac had a solution, and in 1831, young Mac, at about 22 years old, demonstrated that he had a machine that would help automate the harvest process. Three years later, he patents the machine. So he is just pumped. He's very excited. Well, I've got something really great here. And, and by the way, his patent application for a harvesting machine was number 47 for that product. There were 46 other people that had patented some kind of harvesting machine. So this was not a unique thing. There were a lot of people working on this particular invention at the time. Well, Mac got the machine patent, patented and began to do demonstrations. He'd go around to farm fields and he would show them how the machine worked. And people would show up. A lot of people showed up just out of curiosity. Others showed up to heckle. But just a lot of different reasons they showed up. There was one uh, professor at one school that came and examined the machine, and he was just blown away with it. He was so impressed. He said, this machine's worth $100,000. Now, Mac was trying to sell the machine for 50 bucks. He couldn't find any takers. No one. No one wanted the machine. So Mac decided, well, I've got to support myself some way. So he went back to farming. And after a few years of farming and still trying to work on the machine and trying to sell it, no success selling it, he realized, well, this isn't working. I've got to do something else. So he had a deposit of iron ore that was close by. So he talked to his father. He said, Dad, why don't I process this iron ore and sell it to the steel mills? So they, this would give him a source of iron. And Dad said, that's a good idea. You'll probably make more money doing that than you will farming. So he did that. That worked for a couple of years. And along about, about oh, 1838 or so, the price of iron dropped. And all of a sudden, Mac finds himself broke. And he winds up losing his farm, losing his small little iron ore business. He lost everything to his creditors. The only thing he had was this patent because nobody wanted the patent. He was number 47. Okay, you got, a, you got 46 other people that got patents on the kind of machine that you have. You know, what's makes your patent any better than anybody else? So nobody paid any attention to that patent. And so Mac wound up in 1839, dead broke. The only thing he had was a patent. So now, you get to solve his problem. Your discussion question is this. 
1834, Mac filed the 47th patent application for a harvesting machine. For six years, he performed numerous demonstrations, even winning competitions against machines developed by other inventors. In these exhibitions, Mac's machine, with two workers, was equivalent to over 10 men working manually. In other words, the first version of this machine, that's what they were able to do. Basically, two men could do the work of ten men. In later versions, you're going to find it's even better than that. No one, however, was willing to risk $50 to buy Mac's machine. During this time, Mac's efforts to support himself with various business ventures failed. By 1839, Mac was bankrupt. He lost all of his assets except his patent. And by the way, you know, in that time, they had debtor's prison. We don't have that today, but they had it back then. And you may remember when we told the H.J. Hines story. Remember that? So those of you who were here for that story, Hines was in debtor prison. That was part of his journey. Well, Max spent a few days in prison, too. He was able to get out through the help of friends and family, but he, but he did, it did enjoy the presence of debtor, debtor's prison. And so he was totally bankrupt, had no assets, nothing except this patent. So the question is, what did he do? From 1834 to 1840, he did numerous demonstrations trying to differentiate his product from the others. And he was very successful. He competed very well because he could deal with conditions that most other machines could not deal with. So he, he did that. But there's more here to it. Mac came to Christ at this time when he's broke. Isn't that interesting how we come to Christ when we're broke? The other thing is that Mac, when he came to Christ, he was he had already been trained as a Presbyterian. You know, you can go to church and not be a Christian. Is everybody clear on that? You can you can be in church for years. He grew up in church and he did not know the Lord. But at this moment, you know, the Holy Spirit came in his life through this situation because it softened his heart, opened him up, and now he came to Christ. And one of the things he, he realized is there has to be a connection between what I theologically know and how I live. Some people express that as a connection between Sunday and Monday. It's pretty common terminology in our culture. You know, you go to church on Sunday, you hear great theological teaching, but then Monday, you know, where is that teaching? It doesn't seem to have much application. Well, Mac was determined that if I really believe what I say I believe, that is how I live every day in every thought. And so he began to pray and to seek the Lord. And he began to counsel with his fathers. He realized his dad would have been given to him as a gift to help him discern what God was saying to him, help him discern the will of God for his life. So he counseled with his dad and basically concluded, okay, here I am broke, I don't have anything but I have, I have something I really believe in. And he reflected back on the great reformers. Calvin, Knox, his heritage was Scottish. John Knox was the great Scottish theologian who brought Calvinistic thinking, Calvinistic theology to Scotland back 200 years prior to Mac's life. And he'd been influenced by that teaching. So he reflected back on how they lived, the persecution they had to deal with, the struggles, the the difficulties, and he realized they were great men of faith. These men believed in the mission that God had given to them. They believed in the Word of God, and the, the Word of God was the source, was the guiding light for life. So Max says, I believe God has called me to this project 
of developing this machine. Because at the time he was living, farming was what 90 to 95 percent of the people did because they had to live. And he knew with a machine, this was a way to escape the farm. A way for one person to do the work of 10 or 20 or 100 or 200. And if you could do that now, people wouldn't be tied hand to mouth. If we could produce food in abundance, then that would give us the ability to now go work in other areas. And he recognized that we had a mandate, a mandate from God to bring dominion to this planet. And to do that, we had to have the time to work on it. And if all you're doing is, is working to eat, you have no time to work on dominion. So he was really convicted that this was his call. So praying, seeking the Lord, getting counsel from his dad. And through that process, his dad said, you know, I got a little shack. Why don't you set up a plant in that little shack and start building reapers? And he said, wow, never thought about that. So he began to build his machines. And he continued to give demonstrations. Now you got to realize, I mean, he is just dead, dead broke. I mean, he's barely putting food in his mouth every day. And yet he's continuing to do this work. So he's burning the midnight oil. He's working on the weekends. But he's continuing to develop the product, improve the product, praying, seeking the Lord, getting counsel from his dad, all through this. And all of a sudden, one day, out of the blue, just like God, isn't it? Out of the blue. <laughs> this guy shows up. This little Jewish guy <laughs> named Abraham Smith. And he had been to one of the demonstrations, I don't know, some years before. And he says to Mac, I want to buy one of your machines. Mac's stunned. <laughs> I've been at it for six years. Nobody's asked to buy a machine. I don't know how to respond to somebody asking to buy a machine. And so they made the deal. And Abraham gambled, in his mind, 50 bucks on this machine. Well, when harvest came that year, it was... Abraham was just delighted, could not believe how efficient this machine worked, how well it worked, how it facilitated the whole harvest process. He became enthusiastic, and he began to, to you know, send letters to Mac telling him, praising the machine. So by the end of the year, Mac had sold three machines. And he took the praise reports he got from his customers, mainly Abraham, and the next year he sold seven machines. And the next year, he sold 15 machines. Now, you, to us, that might sound like, well, come on. Well, he raised the price to 100 bucks by then. He's <laughs> getting $100, $100 a pop. So, you know, oh, okay, we're, we're really cooking here. But what Mac was beginning to see was how God was directing him and leading him. And how just by faithfully leaning upon the Lord, the Lord was opening the doors. You know, Scripture says, man plans his ways but the Lord directs his steps. So, Mac had done what he knew to do to plan his way. And the Lord now was opening doors that Mac could not explain. How these people were beginning to come to him, he could not explain. All he was doing was faithfully developing the machine and faithfully demonstrating what he could do and sharing the testimonies of others. He was not bragging. It's very important we recognize this. Today, advertising is turning into bragging. It's self-promotion. He didn't do that. What he did is communicate it. Advertising him was communication. I'm sharing with you what other people are saying about this machine. And so that's how he began to build the business. Now, about 1845, 
he began to realize, you know, I'm here in Virginia where there's a lot of, lot of labor, and the, there are really not that many farms, relatively speaking. The farms really are located out west, in the Midwest. So I, I need to get local, I need to move out there, somewhere, I need a plan out there. So he began to experiment with subcontract manufacturing. He experimented with franchising. And as he did that, he discovered that no one had the interest in the quality that he had. Mac was very, very quality oriented. In fact, there, was, there were a couple of sales he did not make early on. And the reason he didn't make them is he looked at the farmer and the farmer's land and he said, you know, you're in an area that gets a lot more rain than most. It's going to be a lot wetter than most. I'm not sure my machine is ready for your land. Now his machine can handle wet conditions to a degree, but not extremely wet. And so part of what he did in 1845 was develop the machine where it could really handle very wet conditions. You see, none of the other inventors were doing this. In fact, all the other inventors were basically, they were non-farmers. They weren't dealing in the realities of what the farm world was really like. And so they didn't deal with topography issues. They didn't deal with wet conditions. Mack was determined to solve the problem. And so he did. So by 1847, he really had a very refined product. Two men could operate this machine and do the work of probably 20 or 30. And it was going to get better because later on he would, he would develop where only one man was needed. And it would not only harvest the grain, but he would bind the grain. And then so one man could do the work of 200 men. So he was committed to product development all along the way. But in 1847, he's realizing, I'm not in the right location. I need another place. He tried the subcontract manufacturing. He tried the franchising. It didn't work. He said, I need a central plant where I can control the quality and we produce a great product. It needs to be close to where the farms are. Well, the farms are in the Midwest. So he begins, he, he sets out on a journey, and you might think, well, gee, by 1845 he had money. No, he didn't. No, he, <laughs> you know, even though the price was 100 bucks then for the reaper, you know, he really hadn't found you know, the niche where it was really going to release the sales yet. So he was still struggling hand to mouth. But he put about, you know, $400 or so, whatever he had, in his, in his purse, and he got on a train, and he starts going throughout the Midwest trying to find where does this plant need to be. So he realized, I need a place where there's railroad, I need a place where there's shipping, and I need easy access to the Midwest. So as he looked around, he found a little village. This little village had been founded about, Oh, about 1834 or so, you know, just 10, 12, 15 years before then. And it was a swampy area. There really wasn't a lot going on. But he could see the potential. It was located on one of the Great Lakes. It didn't have any railroads, but he said, you know, if I build a plant here and I begin to get business, these railroads will come here. And he was right. But the main thing, it was, it was close to the Midwest. It was right there where... He could have easy access to all the farms in the Midwest. The name of that little village was Chicago. And so he went to Chicago to establish his plant. Now, he didn't have any money. How are you going to build a plant? What do you do? Well, you drop on your knees. Lord, if I have discerned your will, if I have discerned where I'm supposed to build, would you show me your plan? 
What is it that you want to do here? Pretty soon he came in contact with a man named William Ogden. William Ogden was a real estate broker there in, in Little Chicago. And this swampy area, by the way, was a very swampy area at the time. And William Ogden had had some success over the last decade in Chicago selling real estate. And he got to talking to Mac, and he liked what he heard. And so he and Mac made a deal. Mac sold him a half interest in his company for $25,000. And so Mac then, in 1847, started building his plant in Chicago. By 1849, the plant was finished. And, frankly, Mac and William Ogden were finished. William Ogden and Mac were both very strong personalities, and they were butting against each other quite intensely. And so Mac made a deal with William, gave him a nice profit for his investment, and bought him out. And from then on, Mac did not have any other partners except family members. Mac was learning the lessons of being equally yoked. Well, 1849 was a great year. The reaper really began to grow and develop. But Mac realized, you know, this is a product that is not only going to bless the U.S., it's got a global potential. And so he decided to go to the World's Fair, 1850, 1851, along with there, went to the World's Fair in London. And they went over there, and he was unprepared for the level of sophistication that they were walking into. Because the Europeans were very much into the ornate and elaborate fairs. He had a simple little demonstration of his machine. And it was kind of dirty and wasn't very pretty. And he was, you know, kind of scruffy looking. He wasn't all decked out like the European gentry were. And so it didn't look like he fit. In fact, the reporters, when they reported on the World's Fair, they were talking about all the great things that the Europeans had developed. And then they got down to the Americans, and they were talking about some of them. And, and they were just kind of dismissing them until they got down to Mac. And Mac had demonstrated what that machine could do in a, in a farmer's field not too far, and they had seen it. And they realized this little thing that didn't look like anything, and this man that looked like a nothing, they had something. And so that launched his international business that year from that World's Fair, and he began to ship now machines overseas, and eventually he shipped machines all over the world. Now you're probably wondering who Mac is, aren't yeah. you? You know, does anybody have any clue who Mac is? Cyrus McCormick. Cyrus Hall McCormick. Does that ring bell with anybody? Cyrus Hall McCormick. He was Mac. He built, he built McCormick Machinery Company, which in the early part of the 20th century became International Harvester. That's what happened to the company. In fact, when it became International Harvester, it was Cyrus Hall McCormick Jr., who was the president, because Cyrus would pass in 1884. But Cyrus had other, other issues to deal with. The next issue to deal with, I had two major calamities to deal with, that really tested him. One was when his patent expired. At that time, the patent laws were such that your patent was good for 14 years. And most of the time, when your patent was up, if you needed a little more protection, you just filed an extension with the patent office, and they'd grant it. You'd get an extension. Well, Mac's extension, Mac's patent expired in 1848, and so he filed for an extension. He had no idea what this was going to cost. You see, because all the, you remember these other 46 guys that had patents? Well, they're all pretty jealous of him 
because he's the one person that's found people willing to pay 50 or 100 bucks to buy these machines. Nobody else is selling anything. And it took Mac a long time to finally sell something. So Cyrus began to uh, have to fight a legal battle here because all of his opponents were wanting, were jealous, were saying, you should not extend the patent because he shouldn't be the only one producing this machine. This machine's too important. All kinds of arguments made by people like Stephen Douglas and Abraham Lincoln. He opposed some of the, the great leaders of the day for 20 years. Those of you that in the legal world like Kevin probably think, think it takes a long time for lawsuits here. Well, try 20 years. You know, basically, his... His situation didn't get settled till the middle of the Civil War. So he had to fight this in addition to trying to build his business. But you know, he fought it in faith based on conviction. His decisions were based on, but always based on conviction. What he believed was right. He was a very principled man. He actually tried to go into politics for a little while. But he had no success there. The reason he had no success in politics where the politicians told him, you're too principled. Yes. That's literally what they told him. You are too principled. Because he never would be partisan. He never cited based on we're in the same party. He always went for principle. What is right? He was a man that lived out the reality of his convictions. He lived the reality of his faith. He lived the reality of the word of God in his life every day. Well, he had one more big battle to fight. In 1871, some of you may know what happened in Chicago. They had a great fire. It lasted for four days. It burned over four square miles of the city, including Cyrus's plant. Now, by the way, Cyrus's plant was quite large. One of the reasons it was quite large is he was vertically integrated. In other words, he started out with raw stuff. I mean, he made his own steel, his own metal parts. He, you know, he took raw wood and turned it into lumber to build his own, you know, machines. You know, all of his gear work and harnesses, leather, all that stuff. He did all of that starting with raw materials. So he was vertically integrated. So he had a big plant making a lot of machines. Now all of a sudden, it's gone. Now Cyrus was a, was godly enough to know you don't make decisions without partnering with your spouse. Now I realize some of you are not married, so. God has friends and other relationships to help you. But he knew that he needed his wife's guidance. So he and his wife would got together and prayed, sought the Lord, about what should we do. With the counsel of his wife, they came to the conviction that they were supposed to rebuild. It's a different process, isn't it? Most of us don't do the kind of things like that. We just go figure it out. No, he really sought the Lord with his wife. And they worked to come to agreement on what they felt the Lord was saying. And not only did he rebuild that plant, he personally paid to rebuild much of Chicago. Things that he had no interest in, just because he had the resources and he wanted to help. You see, one of the signs that you're ready to steward resources is when you don't hold on to them. When, you, when you're willing to share, when you're willing to give, and you don't expect anything back. You're just trying to bless and help other people. Well, that's what, that was Cyrus McCormick. He was a generous, generous man. Cyrus McCormick not only developed the reaper, he developed the business of the reaper, which means he had to develop how you go about doing business to manufacture a product like this. 
What is your philosophy? What are your values? What are your principles? What are your practices? He had to go and develop all that because he didn't have any models. You know, today we've got all these books and we, we've got all these examples of companies and other people. We've got Cyrus McCormick as an example. He didn't have a Cyrus McCormick as an example. You know who he leaned on? He leaned on John Calvin and John Knox. I mean, you could argue that one of the keys to the Industrial Revolution was the Reformation. You could make that argument. And I think it's a valid argument. Because this man lived out the reality of his faith at a level that few have before him and few have since. But I have a, I have a takeaway card for you. If I can find it. It's over here. It's basically some of his thoughts on how to do business. The philosophy, the values, the principles, the practices. So let me just read the card to you, and I'll give you one before you leave. Cyrus McCormick's foundational theology was the belief in the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. That's a very Presbyterian conviction. And I think it's a very sound conviction. God is sovereign, and man is responsible. This theology guided him through all of his life, even in the dark days of bankruptcy. His philosophy was to work under the sovereign hand of God, knowing that he would give an account to God. One day, he would give an account for what he did in this life. His value system included honesty, tenacity, loyalty, accuracy, efficiency, dedication, sincerity, and integrity. And in the book that I read, he made the, the writer made a big deal out of honesty. Cyrus McCormick hated lies. You can tell me good news, you can tell me bad news, but you don't tell me lies. I do not tolerate lies. I, I think back on my own dad. My own dad did not tolerate lying. That was If you wanted to get him mad, just lie to him. If he found out, there was going to be a price to pay, and it was going to be bad. And that's the way Cyrus was. He did not tolerate lying. These values were expressed in his principles and practices that he adopted for the farm machinery business. And the very thing, the, the principles and practice that he adopted became standards in the industry. Because all the other manufacturers that came up, basically copying him, adopted his business philosophy as well. So let me read you his six commandments. These are his six commandments of business. Number one, you provide a written guarantee, including a full warranty. Now you say, well, gee, we do that today. You know why we do that? Because Cyrus McCormick. He's one of the first men that did this. We just take it for granted. We don't know where that came from, Well, it came from him. How about this? Offer products based on set prices, no haggling. Now, we had that today. We go into stores and the prices are there. That wasn't the way it was back in the 1800s. Basically, in the 1800s, excuse me, that's my little, in their, their main facility there in New York City, for everybody to see while they were still working on it. They were still testing it. They were still you know, tweaking it. See, they recognize that this is an opportunity. When we start testing things, then it's an opportunity to show off what we have for people to see it and people to ask questions and us to interact. So that's how he used his, Cyrus used his uh, testing, his demonstrations for the same purpose. So he would make people aware, we're going to test a new machine next week. Now, you know there's a risk here when you're testing a new machine. It may not work. Okay. But we're going to test it. We're going to show you what it can do. And we're going to be honest with you. If it doesn't work, we'll tell you why it doesn't work. And we're going to try to fix it and get it to working for you. So it was just like, here, take a look. It's like, oh, we're opening up our R&D lab, and you can go take a look for yourself. I mean, that's a different mentality. Today, we're, we're all about, oh, we can't sh let everybody see our mistakes. We can't show ourselves as being flawed people in any way. But Cyrus never worried about that. His concern was always about doing the will of God 
according to the ways of God, blessing the people he was called to serve with a great product that would really release the blessing of God on this planet. You could argue that the Industrial Revolution existed because of the reaper. More than anything else. If you don't have adequate food, you can't. people cannot migrate to the cities and begin to do other things. The technology we've enjoyed over the last 200 years largely goes back to the reaper, which goes back to the Reformation, which goes back to Christ. This is Christ being expressed in our culture. So may God give us grace to recognize the reality and the truth of what great men have done who dared to walk in faith and to live out their convictions and do what God created them to do. May God give us grace to do that well in Jesus' name. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for everyone that's here and for their heart and their hunger to know you and for their heart and desire to find what you created them to do and to do it with the excellence, the tenacity, the faithfulness that Cyrus McCormick displayed. So, Father, we just thank you for this example. We thank you for this illustration of what faith in action looks like. Give us the grace to walk as he walked, to bring our theology to bear in everything in our lives so we reflect you in everything we do and everything we say. In Jesus' name, amen.